Good afternoon. Welcome to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm happy to be back on a pleasant Chico summer afternoon. I do know for a fact that the students are back in school because now whenever I go somewhere, even in the morning at around 8 o'clock, it's very hard to get out onto the main street because there's just lots of traffic. And now I think about all of the new apartments that I've seen go up and uh, lots of, I know Eaton Road, uh, Bruce Road, there's just all kinds of new places for people to live and it's really having an effect on the traffic. I have to leave about 10 minutes earlier than I would think I would have to just so I can make it out into the traffic. Well, I've got a lot of interesting things to talk about today and as you know, on Business Buzz, I try to give you the, I try to at least, uh, excuse me, adjusting my mic a little bit, I try to make sure that you have an open mind and you read uh, more than one side of every story if you care to. Uh, some people don't care to. Some people that I spend quite a bit of time with are not interested in the news that I read. Of course, I have to be up on business and tax law because that's my my job. My day job is preparing a lot of income taxes. But I really don't have to read. I really don't have to read all of the news that I do read, but I choose to read it because I believe it's almost, well, it's not a duty. Nobody has to do anything but it's almost a duty of being a citizen to at least be aware of not only what you get told is going on, but also to be aware of what might be going on that you're not being told. As I've said before, back before the internet, I kind of consider the internet around 1994. I remember that eBay, which is a, website I really enjoy. I believe eBay started in 95. I believe Yahoo Mail started in 97. I know AOL started in the late, early 90s. I just consider the mid-90s the start of the internet. And the, the reason I mention that is that as an alternative news junkie, like I am, I used to have to subscribe to paper subscriptions to get a weekly newspaper that was actually printed like a small newspaper and it would arrive in the mail once a week. I can't remember what I paid for it back then. That would have been in the 80s. I probably paid something like 60 or $70 a year, which is now probably the equivalent of two or 300 a year. And to me, it was worth it. Every week when I got my copy of The Spotlight, I would devour every article, the whole thing. And I would try to share some with my friends. If I found a really good one, I would photocopy 10 of them and hand them out to people when I saw them, uh, if I thought they'd be interested. That's the interesting thing about this whole internet, is that the people who were born in the late 80s or early 90s, they'd be 30, 30 to 35 years old. Uh, they never really had a 
life without the internet. So they don't want, they don't know what it's like to go to the public library and check out paper books. Well, some of them do still, but you know, we had if we needed to do, study something for our homework or write a report, we had to go down to the local library and check out a book or borrow the Encyclopedia Britannica from a family who had afforded that. I know my family had one called World Book, and it was a good encyclopedia for doing, looking things up and reading and doing reports. But a friend of ours had the Britannica, and they it was a lot better. But still, it was a printed book, and you know, within a year or two, your printed version is sort of out of date. The other thing is, as a tax preparer, back in the old days, I would say the 80s is the old days. That's when I started doing taxes on a full-time basis. We would have libraries of big, thick books. And I remember it was called, I believe it was called RIA, Research Institute of America, something like that. And every week we would get a big envelope with about 200 pages and the leaf, the type of paper it was on was kind of like, you know, like an old Bible, a nice bound Bible has that super nice thin paper. Well, that's what this was. And it had, uh, these were binders with about eight rings on them. And every week it just happened at my dad's office. My mom was the one who had to do this. Every week she would file all the new pages in all of the binders and then throw out all the old pages, and that would update the latest law and the latest uh, tax law, case law, for, for a tax preparer like my dad. That was in the 80s. And also in the late 80s when we got automated with uh, income tax preparation on our own PCs, we would load the program with a set of disks. They would send us like 15 floppy disks. If anybody's old enough to remember floppy disks, they would send us about 15 of them, and we would load them in one at a time. Of course, we would pray that it all took and got loaded correctly because if it didn't, we'd have to call the software company and get a new batch of disks sent to us. But the interesting thing is now the young, people 30 years and younger, they've never lived without the Internet, and now, for instance, the update of the tax libraries is all online immediately. The tax programs, it updates itself via the Internet, and you don't have any floppy disks at all anymore. It's just a whole new world. But my thing was that, for me, the Internet's value is now we have access to not only the regular news, which is easy to get. You can turn on your TV and get that. But now we have access to alternative information that you never would have seen prior to the Internet. And to me, that's really exciting. The other thing I've noticed is that, and I've mentioned this before on Business Buzz, depending on what browser you use, you'll get different searches. And the one that is the best, I mean, not the best, but the one that gets you the most Freedom of search that I've found is called Yandex, Y-A-N-D-E-X. I believe it's Russian. It is a little bit funky with ads that pop up, so I will, I'm not saying I recommend this. I'm not a computer expert, and I wouldn't want you to get any viruses. But if you have Yandex installed, maybe on a computer you don't care too much about, 
and you search for the same thing that you searched for on Google, you'll get a completely different set of results. And to me, that's amazing. So my main tip, if you are interested in alternative news, my main tip is to avoid Google and find a different search engine. The other good one is called Brave, B-R-A-V-E. It doesn't, as far as I'm concerned, it has no negatives. It works well, and it gives you different search results. But just remember, if you want to you know, look for the closest restaurant or the, or the nearest pharmacy or the nearest gas station, Google's just fine. It'll, it'll do everything you need. But if you're looking up something that might not be a popular topic or a popular point of view, then I recommend using a browser other than Google. I did have a comment from a friend who told me that a friend of theirs, who I don't know, had listened to Business Buzz, and they were saying that I have some weird ideas. And I just wanted to make a comment on that. First of all, I thank anybody who takes time to listen to Business Buzz. It's not easy to find an hour out of your busy day to just sit and listen to some well, I won't say over the hill, but older tax guy. Of course, I've now been uh, I've been in Chico officially since I came back after college. I've been here 35 years now. So I'm kind of happy about that. I'm I'm not a Chico native, but that's getting close. That's over half my life now, including my five years spent while I was in college. I now have 40 of my 60 plus years as a Chico resident. So like I say, I'm not a Chico native, but I'm pretty darn close. I've lived in a few different neighborhoods in Chico. I've settled on the one I like the best, but there's a lot of nice ones. And as I say, my main goal, well, my main goal in life is to save people taxes. So my main job is my day job. I do a lot of income tax work. My second main goal, or my secondary goal, is to educate people and tell them to do a little research and read a little bit, and there's lots of information, and it's up to you. You don't have to take anybody's word for anything. Just look it all up, and you decide what you think sounds more truthful. I think that's the best way to do it. Because obviously you're going to find two different versions or more of everything. And, uh, of course, if um, today I've got a lot of different interesting articles that I brought. I guess I'll say if anybody's a tad on the squeamish side, not that I'm going to be graphic, but if anybody's on the squeamish side of hearing about depressing things that might be part of our, our American history, uh, you know, what can I say? If you don't like it, that's why that's why we're in a free country. You're free to turn the dial or leave it on. And that's the way I look at it. So I brought a lot of good, interesting articles today. I'm trying to figure out which topic we should start with. Oh, hang on. Let me grab my stack of uh, articles that are up for today's uh, review. Okay, well, since since school just started, I've got an education-related article, and uh, I'll preface this by saying, first, I thought 
I thought that there was a law against discriminating based on race. That was my, uh, that's kind of my premise. I believe that is the case. And overall, uh, nobody in this country can discriminate on employment based on race. That would be my assumption. Remember, I have a law degree, but I'm not an attorney, so this is not legal advice. I'm not an MD, so whatever. whenever I talk about medical topics, I'm not a medical professional. I'm just someone who reads a lot of, reads a lot of articles. And I'm also someone who's had a, I've been directly affected by the medical world over the last, mainly over the last 10 months. And so, uh, in a sort of tangential way, I am a victim of the medical takeover of 2020. But I won't go into detail of why that is. But it has affected me personally in a pretty big way. So this article is about the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers Union. And it says, an agreement between the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers Union and the school district states that white teachers will be laid off before teachers of color, regardless of their seniority. The agreement, which was reached to end a two-week teacher strike last spring, says that starting this school year, if accessing a teacher who is a member of a population underrepresented among licensed teachers in the site, the district shall access the next least senior teacher who is not a member of an underrepresented population. Accessing teachers is the process by which staff are reduced. Sounds like firing. They call it accessing. Accessing teachers is the process by which staff are reduced at a particular school due to a drop in enrollment, funding, or other reasons. The agreement further goes on to say that when reinstating teachers, the district shall prioritize the recall of a teacher who is a member of a population underrepresented among licensed teachers in the district. Well, that's interesting. And this came from Fox News website. So it was a section of Fox News from, uh, I think from, I don't know, a few days ago. So that's interesting. I'm sure there'll be some lawsuits there, I would imagine. Well, that's our first break. I got lots more good business news coming up. That was the business of, of excessing. I like that word. Next time I fire someone, I'll say, you're excessed. I'll be right back. This is Pause to Pray. A chance to stop down each day from the daily noise of life and pray for our country's leaders. Today, we pray for Spiro Stefanu, Administrator of the Economic Research Service. He provides leadership and guidance for research, analytical, and technical operations. Philippians 2.3 reminds us of the qualities of a good leader. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Right now, with this in mind, let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask you to guide Spiro Stefanu in his daily operations at the Economic Research Service. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pause to Pray is a service of this station and the Presidential Prayer Team. 
This is an important election year in your state and all across the country. And we're joining together to pray the vote. Details at pausetopray.org. Hello, this is Samantha Landy, and I bring you Psalms of Hope. Heard here on Life Radio every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon. So do tune in and join me for beautiful music and an encouraging word from the Lord. Psalms of Hope with Samantha Landy, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon, here on KKXX. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. Glad you can spend part of your busy day with me. Hopefully you're having a nice Chico summer afternoon. It's been a hot summer. Hopefully it'll cool down a little. Hopefully we won't have too many power outages like we had a week or two ago, but we'll see. So Business Buzz. Business seems to be doing good. It's doing great at the income tax prep office. Got so many people calling, I can't even help them all. And I did have found out through the people who called, call, that a lot of, there's a lot of tax preparing, tax preparation offices. I don't know if they're CPAs or EAs or what. They're not taking new clients. So I would recommend if you have a simple case, but you need help, I would probably call uh, Liberty Tax on Mangrove or H&R Block. I, I guess they're still on the Esplanade. And I think they always take new new clients. Problem is they aren't in, they used to be inexpensive compared to CPA's preparation fees, but based on what I've seen, they really aren't much less than you would pay in my office. But you know, don't don't quote me on that. I always have to get a good idea of what somebody's got because as soon as I quote them, then they come out with, oh, and I got this, and I got that. But all they remember is the dollar amount. So I have to be very careful when I quote like over the phone of the range of how much it'll cost because every time I do, about a minute later, I get a new list of things they forgot they had. But that dollar amount, they don't forget that. They forgot everything else, but they don't forget the dollar amount. So my dad always told me, Whatever you're thinking of quoting somebody, just add 50% before you speak. And that way you'll make up for the fact that you're trying to be a nice guy. And uh, I got a couple favorite sayings regarding that. Uh, one of them's very famous, and it's true. Nice guys finish last. And in this world, uh, not necessarily in the real world, but in this world, nice guys finish last. And my favorite of all time, my dad used to say, is no good deed goes unpunished. Every time I go out of my way to help someone more than I should, it backfires on me. And uh, I won't go into detail, but I've got one case right now through work that's, it was sort of a client situation. I felt sorry for someone. I offered to help when I didn't have to anymore. And now it's become a daily headache. And, uh, like I say, I won't go into detail, but no good deed goes unpunished. Don't forget that. 
So I've uh, over the last few weeks, I had a, my guest, Scott Hubbard, who was a practicing attorney for years. And today I've got a little legal news because I received a letter about a year ago asking if I wanted to volunteer to be on the grand jury. And that sparked my interest. I went so far as to respond yes, but I didn't go so far as to answer the second letter where I would have to go to a court and sort of get interviewed. And I kind of would have to pledge that I'd be available for something like 12 to 20 hours a week to do this. And I realized at that point that, you know, I really don't have that kind of time with my business and my work and my obligations to my family and my clients. So I basically, you know, didn't, didn't follow through with it. But it's interesting because I don't have the Constitution in front of me, of course. I wouldn't want to be picked up by a, you know, in a traffic stop and get called a domestic terrorist. So I don't carry a copy of the Constitution right with me. But I did come across reading about, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember his name the Italian name of the Supreme Court guy who died mysteriously at like George H.W. Bush's dude ranch, Scalia, Scalia, uh, died very mysteriously. And one of his opinions had said the grand jury provision of the, of the Constitution does not place the grand jury under any of the three branches of our government. Now, it came to my attention through another article that there's some U.S. representatives, including the one they call AOC, that did not even know the three branches of government, that she is part of one of them. And the three branches, if you need a reminder, are the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. But Scalia came out with a decision, I don't have it in front of me, and he basically said, the grand jury part of the Constitution is not set under any one of those three. In other words, it sort of belongs to the people. And so I found this article that I thought was interesting and I wanted to share. It's called Fact or Fiction. In some U.S. states, citizens can convene their own grand jury. And then it says this is a fact. Now, I would just interject here and I would say probably if you wanted to try it and challenge it, it would probably be legal to do it in all the states. But it says right here, one woman in Kansas is using a rarely used 19th century law to convene a grand jury of fellow citizens to help bring charges against the man she alleges, um, well, did something very, very bad to her. In 2018, Madison Smith, that a, class, uh, that a classmate alleged that a classmate attacked her when she was a university student in Kansas. The accused denied that he had done anything and insisted that their relationship was consensual. You can figure the rest out. The county prosecutor refused to press charges, but charged Stoltzenberg, that's the defendant, with battery, to which he pleaded guilty. Ms. Smith used a Kansas state law dating back to 1887 to instead call up a, quote, citizen's grand jury. It convened for the first time recently in what is thought to be the first case of its kind involving a sex crime in the United States. Citizens' grand juries in Kansas have previously been convened because people were unhappy with an indecent public sculpture, adult bookstores, or abortion doctors. 
In most states, a grand jury is organized by officials investigating the case and determines if there is enough evidence to pursue a prosecution. Grand jury members examine evidence and hear witness testimony. Sometimes they subpoena documents from the accused or look only at the evidence that the police have gathered. The grand jury meets in secret to decide only if charges should be brought, but does not decide if the accused is guilty or innocent. A grand jury does not have to be unanimous to issue an indictment, but depending on the jurisdiction, usually two-thirds or three-quarters of the grand jurors must agree. If charges are filed, the case is handled as a standard, standard criminal matter. The defendant pleads guilty or not guilty in a traditional jury trial. In most of the U.S., only a judge or a prosecutor has the power to convene a jury. But Kansas, along with Oklahoma, Nebraska, North Dakota, New Mexico, and Nevada, allows citizens themselves to call one. Kansas's law was designed to ensure that people who do not have wealth or power can still have a shot at holding someone accountable for their actions. In Kansas, a state resident must circulate a petition to collect a certain number of signatures. Ms. Smith's petition were posted in bars and cafes in town. Smith, who needed 212 signatures, collected 329. What do you think? Should citizens be able to call their own grand juries, which might result in criminal charges against someone? Well, that's an interesting article. And I'm almost like, well, of course. Why, why, would, it, why would that be left to a <coughs> potentially crooked <coughs> a judge or oh, <coughs> potentially crooked uh, prosecutor? So, you know, basically the bottom line is everything to do with something like grand juries deciding who should be charged should always be done from the ground up. In other words, it would always be better to have the people run that versus a, quote, judge or, quote, prosecutor because these prosecutors can be so selective, they can choose who to prosecute and the course the bad part is who not to prosecute it's just such a it's the whole thing such a dirty system um totally corrupted and uh not fair so uh, of course i believe that that's a great idea for citizens to impanel grand juries perfect timing for that second break this is Harold Littlejohn, CPA, talking about the business of self-driving cars in a minute. Stay tuned to Business Buzz. And it's not what you think. Did he give us a commandment to forgive people? Yes, he did. Did he give us a commandment not to be afraid? Yes, he did. But the commandment, number one, that he taught all of his disciples from the beginning, love one another. David Hawking explains Jesus' command to love one another and why it matters on Hope for Today. Tune in for Hope for Today weekdays at 8 a.m. here on KKXX. Hi, Bob the Drop here. The other day I had a close encounter with my friends from Mars. I visited them a few years back and they discovered the great taste of Mount Shasta spring water. Well, I guess they ran out, so they came back to Earth to get some more. I reminded them it comes from a protected spring at the base of Mount Shasta and it's bottled at the source. I guess they just didn't get the part about us delivering right to your door. Have your own close encounter by calling 1-800-922-6227 to get some of the best tasting water in the galaxy. Pure and simple, naturally the best Mount Shasta spring water. 
God has abundantly blessed America. Our founding fathers knew and understood the laws of nature and of nature's God that prosper a people in harmony with them. Most assuredly, people that seek first God's ways of universal righteousness, spiritual prosperity, create the environment of peace, harmony, and blessing that naturally pave the way to material prosperity. America, bless God. Empowering people out of poverty, helping kids and communities to shine. There's nothing quite like it. At World Vision, we've seen what happens when a child gets clean water or nutritious food, when she feels safe, gets to learn in a classroom, or discovers that she has infinite worth. Together, we're working to help every kid everywhere grow into who God created them to be. Reach out with us today and help people change their own lives for good. Learn more at worldvision.org. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. And I've got an interesting, to say the least, article. Does anyone remember the name Michael Hastings? I think he was a journalist, I believe, for the Rolling Stone. And he was writing some very anti-Obama presidency articles. And I think it was in 2013. So anyway, there's an Interpol Russia document. The reason I said self-driving cars was there was an interesting crash of this journalist back, I think it was in 2013, And his Mercedes was driving in Hollywood. And it's all on, you know, those video cameras they have uh, along the roadways in most places. And all of a sudden, his Mercedes took off at about 100 miles an hour. I'll, I'll just read this. Early in the morning of June 18, I think it was 2013, a brand new Mercedes C250 Coupe was driving through the Melrose intersection on Highland Avenue in Hollywood when suddenly out of nowhere it sped up. According to an eyewitness, the car accelerated rapidly, bounced several times, then fishtailed out of control before it slammed into a palm tree and burst into flames, ejecting its engine some 200 feet away. So I remember that from way back when. So the reason I said... I've got alternative news about self-driving cars, and I said it's not what you think. I thought maybe you were thinking I was going to talk about Tesla and their self-driving cars that I don't want to be anywhere near until they perfect that technology because I've read enough articles about Teslas to make me want to stay 100 feet away from them when I see them. So there's a report most glaring to be noticed in an Interpol Russia document. And this is what I said, if you are if you don't like unpleasant topics, just tune out, because I'm not going to be graphic, but I'm going to talk about topics that are not fun. But this is, 
This is part of being an alternative news junkie. And if you're like me, you want to hear this stuff. So uh, it says, most glaring to be noticed is an Interpol-Russia document about child sex slave trafficking in Eastern Europe. A document critical to notice because it notes Russian child sex trafficking investigators cooperating with an American Christian missionary in the Eastern European nation of Romania named Jackie Walorski, who after returning to the United States and being elected to U.S. Congress, sponsored the, quote, Human Trafficking Prevention Intervention and Recovery Act of 2014. And during the past year, notes in the file about U.S. Congresswoman Walorski that she had been in contact with Hollywood actress Anne Hesch, who during the past year was making the movie Girl in Room 13 about child sex, slavery, and trafficking. The reason it's critical to notice the SVR, including file information about Michael Hastings, that's the guy I told you about in the old crash, in their report is because of what happened on 3rd August, which was when a car driven by St. Joseph County Republican Party Chair Zachary Edith Schmucker, I'm sorry, Zachary Potts, suddenly crossed the center line of a roadway on a clear day, crashing head-on into the vehicle of Edith Schmucker, killing both of them, along with U.S. Congresswoman Walorski and her communications manager, Emma Thompson. Then two days later, on August 5th, the car driven by Hollywood actress Ann Hesch suddenly out of nowhere sped up, crashed into a house, then burst into flames, and saw her dying on August 11th quickly after which the Los Angeles Police Department said it would no longer investigate Ann Hesh's sudden car crash. Most ominously, this report also references the scientific article Radio Attack Let's Hackers Steal 24 Different Car Models and the Washington Post article What We Know About Car Hacking, the CIA and those WikiLeaks claims, wherein it revealed tucked into WikiLeaks' analysis of a trove of documents allegedly from the Central Intelligence Agency is a stunning line that the agency has looked into hacking cars, which WikiLeaks asserts could be used to carry out nearly undetectable assassinations in making its claim. WikiLeaks links to meeting notes from 2014 listing potential mission areas for the CIA's Embedded Devices Branch, which includes vehicle systems, and QNX. Yoni Heilbronn, the Vice President of Marketing at Argus, Argus Cybersecurity, an automotive security company, said, the equation is very simple. If it's a computer and it connects to the outside world, then it is hackable. And as to if child sex trafficking investigators, U.S. Congresswoman Jackie Walorski and Hollywood actress Ann Hesch were victims of the CIA murder device QNX, able to carry out nearly undetectable assassinations by taking control of a car to send it across roadways into traffic or speed it up to crash in a fireball explosion, it bears remembering that an assassination order like this would come from Supreme Socialist leader Joe Biden, whom the FBI has already confirmed took naked showers with his young daughter. Whoops. Sorry, I didn't see that part coming. I try not to be too political on this show. But the bottom line is, if you think about what I just read, 
we don't know anything of what's really going on in 90% of the stories we read. So that's the business of self-driving cars. But I'd call it more the monkey business of self-driving cars uh, as opposed to the business of self-driving cars, which, like I say, I've read enough stories about Teslas running into trees and uh, blowing up in parking lots for no reason. Uh, That's not for me. I don't want anything self-driving. That's just my personal opinion. And that and a quarter will get you a cup of coffee. Come to think of it, I don't know where you can get a cup of coffee for a quarter anymore, but it sounds good. Oh, you could get one for a silver quarter. Those quarters from before 1965 where they have 90% silver. Those will definitely get you a cup of coffee these days. How about the medical business? I love the medical business. That's where all the money seems to be at. I'm not in it. I do a few taxes for a few medical people, but I don't ask them their I don't ask them details about the work they do. And since the last two years, I don't really want to know the work they do. But I found an interesting headline. And it's medical news. And it's from planet-today. So planettoday.com. August of 2022. And the headline says, Israel wants to halt rabies vaccine for animals after just 10 adverse events, but won't stop COVID vaccines for humans after hundreds of thousands of injuries and deaths. So are we seeing here that maybe animals are more important than humans? That seems to be what they're indicating. Israel's Minister of Agriculture wants to halt the Nobavac rabies vaccine for animals. Investigators detected a higher than normal rate of adverse event in pets, including fever, pain, allergies, and shock symptoms. Three pets were reportedly hospitalized after vaccination. So far, no animal deaths have been reported. The agency has verified 10 adverse events per 100,000 vaccinations and wants to investigate both the importer and the manufacturer for errors related to shipment, contamination, and product defect. Meanwhile, Israel continues to ignore hundreds of thousands of citizens who have been either injured or killed by COVID vaccines. Israeli government taking animal vaccine injuries seriously while ignoring hundreds of thousands of injured humans. The Israeli government's sudden interest in vaccine safety for animals comes at a time when hundreds of thousands of people are reporting injuries and deaths from the COVID jabs. The Israeli government is currently ignoring all pharmacovigilance data for the disastrous COVID vaccine, pretending that hundreds of thousands of medical issues are just imaginary, made-up conspiracy theories. However, when it comes to the rabies vaccine, a few vaccine Injured animals are a serious issue. A shocking study out of Israel recorded a 25% increase in cardiac events among young Israeli men, 16 to 39 years old, post-vaccination. 
The study, which was peer-reviewed by MIT researchers, found out that the uptick in cardiac events seems to track closely the administration of second-dose vaccines. The cardiac events were not related to COVID-19 infection either. The rates of cardiac events was compared to the rate of cardiac events in 2019 and 2020. The year 2020 was when young people were branded as super spreaders and told them to stay home, lest they die from COVID in droves. Turns out that excess deaths in young people were much higher after they were forced to vaccinate. It turns out that labeling young people as super spreaders and locking them down is a malicious, false guilt tactic to isolate them, drive them to depression, drug use, and suicide, while compelling them their, compelling their participation in deadly, heart-damaging experiments. The MOA ignored the report and mocked it as misinformation. This has been the sordid trend for most governments as they continue on in a state of denial and delusion, mocking the very people who have been injured or killed by the COVID vaccine and all the related abuse pushed forth by governments. Israel explicitly colluded with Pfizer to oppress the Israeli population with vaccine passports, lockdowns, isolation, and segregation. Wow. That's a way to end the segment on a happy note. I'll be right back on Business Buzz. From the Pacific Justice Institute, this is The Legal Edge. Defending your rights as a Christian, a parent, and a citizen. Here's Brad Vegas. If AB 2547 passes, policemen would be stripped of their right to publicly express personal opinions without punishment. The bill also could prevent a police officer from attending a Bible-believing church that simply preaches what the Bible says about controversial sexual lifestyles. This is because of the bill's vague use of the term hate groups. Well, PJI's Center for Public Policy is actively working to shed light on the damaging nature of the bill and to ensure this bill does not pass. Stay up to date on PJI's cases by signing up for the weekly newsletter at pji.org. PJI provides legal representation without charge. Get exclusive email updates by registering for The Legal Insider at pji.org. I spend a lot of time in the backyard, and I'm the center of attention at summer barbecues. In 96, I made some of the tastiest s'mores. And at 09, it was me, your backyard fire pit, that accidentally started a wildfire when a summer breeze carried one of my embers into some dry brush. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Business Buzz. I hope I... Sorry about that last article, but you know this is the stuff I'm interested in. So the other business I was thinking of, how about the business of war? That's the main business for most 
large corporations and governments and people taking kickbacks and bribes and the whole bit. So I remember my, I've talked about this before, but my dad was a ROTC guy in college. He was, when he turned 18, the war was about two months from being over in Europe. And so he was going to be in the army when he graduated from high school and he was going to be what's called intelligence reconnaissance in Japan where he would go in behind the lines and find out where the Japanese were. And I mentioned this before, but he wasn't like totally missed. He wasn't like John Rambo or anything. And he, he had said to us when we were little, he said, I never would have made it. But then when they dropped the bomb, Japan surrendered and he ended up spending his military time in the occupation of Nagasaki, which was the second city to receive the the big bomb. And that was his military career. It wasn't that it wasn't that big of a deal. He he sort of got lucky by not having to go behind the lines because like he said he wouldn't have made it. Of course then I wouldn't be here today. And you wouldn't be able to hear all these articles I read on Business Buzz. But what I do recall is I used to go to, down to work for him once a week, and he had an office in Oakland, and I would stay with him and have dinner with him, and it was kind of nice. So I brought him a book to read, and it was called Trading with the Enemy. And it talked all about how Hitler's Germany was basically supplied by multinational companies purposely to keep them going and to build them up. It's a really, really bad, bad book if you read it as far as waking you up. It's quite unbelievable. If you've believed the, if you've believed the main talking points of the last 70 years, reading that book will completely slap your face and wake you up. So, a couple of weeks after I had seen him and dropped off that book, I asked him, because the book was on his table, I think, near his easy chair. I said, hey, what do you think of that book? He says, Harold, I can't read it. Bottom line is that when he realized that what he had thought all of his life was such a worthy cause, fighting in a foreign war where all those Americans got killed, once he read some of trading with the enemy, he just said, I can't read that. Because it destroyed his mental image of the great the great war and how wonderful it was that we went over there and did that. And it turns out that when you start learning some facts, and like I say, from alternative sources, you realize that things are not what you were told. So that's a great example of someone who, he was a very, very smart guy, uh, everyone liked him. He helped his clients a lot. Uh, practiced for 54 years as an accountant and a tax preparer, helping a lot of people. But he couldn't face the truth. It hurt too much to find out that what he thought was a great worthy cause where all those people died, he found out that no, it really probably really wasn't at all. So I thought that was very interesting. So related to that, I found a, now here's another myth. What, what would you say is the general, the general ranking or rating 
of President Dwight Eisenhower. I mean, generally, wouldn't you kind of figure he would rank kind of high up there as a likable president who did good things? Well, I found an article that might change some minds. I mean, I didn't have a mind made up. I don't, I don't respect any president unless I know they did something good. I'm not a, I'm not a historian, so um, I didn't have any great opinion of Eisenhower one way or the other. I just know he was on a stamp after he died, an eight-cent regular issue stamp, and he was on the bicentennial dollar, the Ike. It wasn't a silver dollar. The proof dollar of Ike for a few years was made of 40% silver, I believe, but most of them are what's called clad, which is our junk coins now that are made of nothing worth anything. But anyway... So this is the article that I'm going to read part of called Eisenhower's Death Camps, The Last Dirty Secret of World War II. It says, call it callousness, call it reprisal, call it a policy of hostile neglect. A million Germans taken prisoner by Eisenhower's armies died in captivity after the surrender. In the spring of 1945, Adolf Hitler's Third Reich was on the brink of collapse, ground between the Red Army advancing westward towards Berlin and the American British and Canadian armies under the overall command of General Dwight Eisenhower moving eastward over the Rhine. Since the D-Day landings in Normandy the previous June, the westward allies had won back France and the Low Countries, and some Wehrmacht commanders were already trying to negotiate local surrenders. Other units, though, continued to obey Hitler's orders to fight to the last man. Most systems, including transport, had broken down, and civilians in panic flight from the advancing Russians roamed at large. Hungry and frightened, lying in grain fields within 50 feet of us, awaiting the appropriate time to jump up with their hands in the air. That's how Captain H.F. McCullough of the 2nd Anti-Tank Regiment Division described the chaos of the German surrender at the end of the Second World War. In a day and a half, according to Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, 500,000 Germans surrendered to his 21st Army Group in northern Germany. Soon after VE Day, May 8, 1945, the British-Canadian catch totaled more than 2 million. Virtually nothing about their treatment survives in the archives in Ottawa or London, but some skimpy evidence from the International Committee of the Red Cross, the Army's concern, and the prisoners themselves indicate that almost all continued in fair health. In any case, most were quickly released and sent home, or else transferred transferred to the French to help in the post-war work of reconstruction. The French army had itself taken fewer than 300,000 prisoners. Like the British and Canadians, the Americans suddenly faced astounding numbers of surrendering German troops. The final tally of prisoners taken by the U.S. Army in Europe, excluding Italy and North Africa, was 5.25 million. But the Americans responded very differently. Among the early U.S. captives was one Corporal Helmut Liebich, who had been working in an anti-aircraft experimental group at Penamunde on the Baltic. Liebich was captured by the Americans on April 17th near Gotha in central Germany. 42 years later, he recalled vividly that there were no tents in the Gotha camp, just barbed wire fences around a field soon churned to mud. The prisoners received a small ration of food on the first day, but it was then cut in half. In order to get it, they were forced to run a gauntlet. Hunched over, they ran between lines of American guards who hit them with sticks as they scurried towards their food. On April 27th, they were transferred to the U.S. camp at Heidesheim, 
farther west, where there was no food at all for days, then very little. Exposed, starved, and thirsty, the men started to die. Liebich saw between 10 and 30 bodies a day being dragged out of his Section B, which at first held around 5,200 men. He saw one prisoner beat another to death to get his piece of, his piece of bread. One night when it rained, Liebich saw the sides of the holes in which they were sheltered dug in soft, sandy earth collapse on men who were too weak to struggle out. They smothered before anybody could get to them. Liebich sat down and wept. I could hardly believe men could be so cruel to each other. Typhus broke out in Heidesheim about the beginning of May. Five days after VE Day on May 13, Liebich was transferred to another U.S. POW camp at Bingen-Rudesheim in the Rhineland near Bad Kreuznach, where he was told that the prisoners numbered somewhere between 200 and 400,000, all without shelter, food, water, medicine, or sufficient space. Soon he fell sick with dysentery and typhus. He was moved again, semi-conscious and delirious, in an open-top railway car with about 60 other prisoners, northwest down the Rhine with a detour through Holland, where the Dutch stood on bridges to smash stones down on the heads of the prisoners. Sometimes the American guards fired warning shots near the Dutch to keep them off. After three nights, his fellow prisoners helped him stagger into the huge camp at Rheinberg near the border with the Netherlands, again without shelter or food. When a little food finally did arrive, it was rotten. In none of the four camps had Liebich seen any shelter for the prisoners. The death rate in the U.S. Rhineland camp at this point, according to surviving data from a medical survey, was about 30% per year. A normal death rate for a civilian population in 1945 was between 1% and 2%. One day in June, through hallucinations of his fever, Liebich saw the Tommies coming into the camp. The British had taken over Rheinberg, and that probably saved his life. At this point, Liebich, who was 5'10", weighed 97 pounds. According to stories told to this day by other ex-prisoners of Rheinberg, the last act of the Americans before the British took over was to bulldoze one section level while there were still men living in their holes in the ground. Under the Geneva Convention, three important rights are guaranteed prisoners of war that they will be fed and sheltered to the same standard as base or depot troops of the capturing power, that they can send and receive mail, and that they will be visited by delegates of the International Red Cross who will report in secret on their treatment to a protecting power. Switzerland had been delegated, designated the protecting power. In fact, German prisoners taken by the U.S. Army at the end of the Second World War were denied these and most other rights, by a series of specific decisions and directives stemming mainly from Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force. General Dwight Eisenhower was both Supreme Commander of Supreme Headquarters, all the Allied armies in Northwest Europe, and the Commanding General of the U.S. Forces in the European Theater. He was subject to the Combined Chiefs of Staff of Britain and the U.S., to the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, and to the policy of the U.S. government. But in the absence of explicit directives... To the contrary or otherwise, ultimate responsibility for the treatment of the German prisoners in American hands lies with him. God, I hate the Germans, Eisenhower wrote to his wife, Mamie, in September 1944. Earlier, in front of the British ambassador to Washington, he had said that all the 3,500 or so office of the German general staff should be exterminated. So, I won't go on and on. You can read that if you want, but the main... uh, The main point is, of course, you could say, well, here's some German guy. You're going to believe him. Well, what I would say is where else are you going to get this information? You're not going to hear this come from a 
from one of the uh, prison guards who did all this, and I've read about this before, but it's just another example that you can't believe everything you think, and anybody who thinks World War II was some glorious, righteous thing, the whole thing was staged, set up, and uh, it was all set up and done on purpose, and uh, it made a lot of people a lot of money. Um, And there's a book called uh, War is a Racket, I think it's Smedley Butler. I can't remember exactly, but my point is is that you've got to look at the alternative answers to the questions you might have. And if you think you know the answer to something, you need to look at both sides of the answers and see which one makes more sense. As far as, I mean, most people I know don't agree with war and killing and slaughtering and foreign intervention, but for some reason... Whoever is running our country, they do believe in it, they profit from it, and it just seems to keep on happening. So I just encourage everybody to look at the alternative viewpoint and mainly uh, don't believe anything you hear, even anything I say, of course, you wouldn't have to. But don't believe anything and uh, read a little bit for yourself. I think there's a lot of people that right now are having a lot of buyer's remorse I won't go into what I'm talking about, but you could probably figure it out. There's a lot of people that if they had have asked somebody like me who's been reading a lot or done 20 minutes of research on their own, I think they wouldn't be regretting some of the decisions they've made over the last uh, year and a half. But uh, not my problem. I'm not an attorney, not a doctor, but buyer's remorse is a really lousy feeling. And all it would have taken would be maybe a half hour of research to learn more and to learn some alternative news. Well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Time to get back out into the furnace of Chico summer afternoon and and enjoy another nice day in Chico. Thanks for listening to Business Buzz. I'm Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'll be back next week.